text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. We have been looking at the book of Romans uh, for some time now, uh, and we're going to continue that this morning looking at chapter 12. It was a Christmas party, and Christmas bonuses or bonuses for the year were being handed out. Uh, this individual had had uh, really a tremendously successful year. Uh, he was salesman of the year, and this was a smaller company or family-run company, and they handed out bonuses at the Christmas party. The bosses uh, passed them along to the individual as a way to say thank you. Um, at this particular party, the, uh, his immediate supervisor handed the envelope to his wife um, at this celebration, and her response to this was a uh, what best would be described as a muted, uh, muted and subdued thank you. Immediately, the supervisor just broke out laughing because she took the check and just sort of stuffed it in her purse. Um, and he asked her, are you not even going to open it? Because he knew that this check was not insignificant, that it was sizable, and her response was sort of less than joyous at receiving this. Paul has unwound for us some truly astounding claims. Up to this point in time, and in chapter 12, there's sort of a, a turn uh, in this letter. If you've been with us, you know that the world and everyone in it is broken. Uh, it has been Paul's uh, sort of diagnosis and is in need of repair. That's not anything that we need to sort of, that's not news for us. We see this uh, in the world around us and we experience it personally. Paul has also said, out of this mess, uh, God has poured out his mercy on those that he loves. That he's always been true and always is true to keep his promises. His promises even to the Jewish people, to those that had rejected him, rejected the Messiah. Now up until this point in time, Paul spent a great deal of uh, the letter sort of espousing all of these sort of views and enrolling them all. And then the question becomes, what difference should this make or what difference does it make? How should we respond to all of this? A, a muted thank you, uh, just sort of a subdued response or something else. Look with me as we read from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to each one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We all have different gifts according to grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouragement, or if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently if it is to show mercy. Do it cheerfully. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you be with us as we just question what our response to you should be. How should we respond to your love and mercy? 
We pray that you would be with us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In an issue of GQ magazine, there were two quotes that really put two stark, starkly different worldviews sort of in display. The first quote was by Matthew McConaughey, and he was named Man of the Year the year that this particular issue came out. He argues this, that I'm a fan of the word selfish. Selfish is the way he described it. When I say I've gotten a lot, of, a lot more selfish, I mean I'm less concerned about what other people think of me. He goes on in this article to say selfishness has gotten a bad rap. And at the very end of the article, he basically says you should do for you. Well, that's one view. George Saunders in the exact same issue was labeled Coach of the Year, and this is what he said. The big kahuna of all moral questions as far as I'm concerned is ego. How do you correct the fundamental misconception that we are all born with, namely the idea that I'm central All the nasty stuff in this life comes out of that misunderstanding. Two completely different ways of viewing life. Paul sort of unrolls for us what really should be present, should be our view of life, and he begins by just giving the base of that kind of life. He starts this way, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Just a description of what he's not talking about. The opposite of mercy really would be fear. Why would I say that? It's a fear of losing, losing a relationship with God or God's love. If you're unsure of your relationship with Him, unsure of His love, then the only motive left is fear. If you've ever been in that position, you know that fear is a draining emotion that can't be sustained long term. Why would I say that? Fear has trouble with failures. If we're truly in fear of our relationship, there must be some line out there that if we cross it, God condemns us. We don't know exactly where that's at. We may search for that or may read, try to find out where that's at, but it's got to be out there somewhere. If fear is sort of your motive, the way that you operate, um, repentance for you, Uh, Saying I'm sorry is a bitter thing. It also makes it absolutely impossible to endure trouble. Because our response to trouble, suffering that comes in our life, is God must be paying me back for something or that he's abandoned me. It's commonly seen in the way that we respond. This isn't fair. And the results of that kind of life is sort of a bitterness and a despair. The way Paul describes it, it's the same old business is the best description. It's letting the world dictate terms and conditions, thinking, acting, and speaking. It's the way that we respond to life, the way we're told we're to respond. But Paul has something entirely different in view when he starts in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Some have said that you should always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Um, um, it really just means everything that Paul has talked about in the previous 11 chapters. In view of God's mercy, if you've been with us, you know that if you're in a relationship with God, it's because of mercy and nothing else. You're declared right in God's sight because of what Jesus has done for you. Paul's point is that this is really the only motive for the Christian life, is one of gratitude, a thankfulness, an awareness of mercy. Anything else 
Anything else that you want to throw into that is really, in Paul's mind, conforming to the image of the world. Anything else is actually business as usual, and it's not the gospel. Or if I can put it this way, anything else is subpar or sub-Christian. As we look at this, what you should be stunned by is that Paul doesn't start his vision with one of rules and regulations that you apply to your life. It's not the spiritual life that he envisions even. One thought writer said this, what Paul is trying to press in here is the center is really a mind that's alert, awake to the, God, the mercy of God and what flows from that. And anything else is really immature thinking. In a book recently put out called American Girl, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers, the researcher asked, had a conversation with a teenager at a mall, um, and the conversation went something like this. The teenager said, social media is destroying our lives. The researcher said, so why don't you get off of it? It seems reasonable, doesn't it? If something is destroying you, let it go. Smash it. Get rid of it. This little girl responded this way, because if we did, we would have no life. For some of you, the idea that somehow you would get rid of the way, the way you understand spirituality, the way you understand Christian life means that you wouldn't have a life if you did that. If you were to replace that with mercy, what would be left? If there's a lack of passion, if you're a Christian this morning, a lack of interest, what that means is not that you need to try harder. It means that you've forgotten mercy. Specific acts that God has done in order to bring you back. Look at the cross is what Paul would say. Think about it. Meditate on it until there's actually a spark. We have to, Paul's point, is get our minds around this. The only thing that will do us any good, that will have any impact on the way that we live and actually the way that we relate to one another and those around us. Being loved unconditionally by your Creator changes you more than any family membership or civic background. It changes you more than your parents, than the way that you were brought up in your culture. Paul says that this is the base out of which you operate. But he also mentions the place in verses 1 and 4. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. At least in Western Christianity, we've read this verse as sort of an individual kind of um, mandate. On me as an individual Christian, but that's actually not what Paul says at all. It's not talking about you personally, if I can put it that way. Everything written here is in the plural. Uh, the better way to say this is to offer y'all's bodies, if we could use that. Uh, we don't have a way of actually translating that well, but it's all in the plural. It's something that we, y'all, as the church, do together. Not something necessarily that you do as an individual. And then Paul unrolls this in really what is really nothing less than shocking is the language that he uses. I've urged you to offer your bodies as a sacrifice. The terms are really abrupt and it is startling. He uses temple terminology. The idea is a worshiper coming into a temple, making an offering, and it's not a sin offering. 
because Jesus did that. But there were other kinds that worshipers were supposed to give in the temple. There was a whole burnt offering. It was without defect. It was expensive. And it was completely consumed in worship. It showed complete devotion, consecration to God. The point is, the Christian life begins not with rules, but instead gladly, joyfully giving yourself to God whose mercy has come all the way to meet you in your brokenness, in your death, in the things that drive you absolutely crazy in your life. This living, Paul describes, is really being completely at God's disposal uh, where there are no limits, willing to follow Him in any area of life, and willing, as a consequence of that, willing to thank Him uh, for anything that He actually sends into my life. Paul describes this as a constant thing, not as something that's done. It's a, a continual renewing of where I'm at and what's going on. And he says, I also urge you to offer your bodies. Uh, this isn't purely inward, by the way. Uh, if Paul doesn't drive the point home clearly, um, it's not abstract, but instead it's physical. Um, it's practical is the way he describes it. What we know is, at least in the Scriptures, the mind and the body are closely connected. They form a coherent whole. Uh, they can't be divided one from another. Paul says that, really, this is what worship is all about. Um, it's not strictly spiritual, uh, but instead it's something more than that. The way this term is translated, at least in this translation, is that this is your spiritual act of worship, well, and actually, that's not what Paul says. He says it's rational. Why would he say that? Because if you know anything about God's mercy, giving yourself is actually the only rational thing to do. It makes sense based on everything else that he said in the pre preceding 11 chapters. We often hear somebody respond, well, I'm not very religious, but I'm a good person, and that's what's most important. But is that really true? I want you just to imagine a woman, a poor widow with an only son. She teaches him, brings him up how she wants him to live, to always tell the truth, to work hard and help the poor. She makes almost no money or very little. But with her meager savings and working herself to the bone, she's actually put him through college. I want you just to imagine that he graduates and he hardly ever speaks to her again. Occasionally, he sends a Christmas card, but he doesn't really visit her. He won't answer her phone calls. He won't answer her letters. He doesn't respond to any texts that she might send. He really just doesn't speak to her. But he lives like she taught him to live, honestly, industriously, and charitably. Now, honestly, would you say that that was acceptable? No one would agree that that would be acceptable. Wouldn't you say... Uh, that he was living a good life, but neglecting the relationship with the one he owed everything to, he wasn't doing anything commendable. Paul's pointing the same way God created us, and we owe him everything. It's not enough to live a good life. This is an overwhelming sort of debt that has to be paid. It's the only logical, reasonable, rational response. This morning, if you're holding something back or if there's an area of your life 
that you're thinking, no, I, I will not actually let God have any say-so in that, then you're not thinking logically. But even more importantly, what kind of response would you actually expect out of everything that he said up to verse, up to chapter 12? And then in the position he gives us in verses 3 through 8. For by the grace God has given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. I'll just tell you what Paul is not saying here is that you should think terrible thoughts about yourself. Um, he is not advocating thinking less of yourself. Sort of the idea that I don't matter, I'm not important, and I'm not talented. This is exactly the opposite, actually, of what Paul is saying. What he's urging us to is a right view of ourselves. It's not to think more highly of yourself or to think lower of yourself. It's to think of yourself less would be a better way to describe it. One writer said this, The problem is not a low self-esteem, but self-centeredness and egocentricity. It's an inflated view of who we are. Most world religions actually identify this as the source of humanity's worst problems. Why would I say that? We exaggerate. Our wisdom, our serenity, our power, um, we exaggerate pretty much everything about our lives. Paul says that we should think soberly. By the way, the opposite of that would be to think drunkenly. It's an accurate description of who we are. How do we come about this? Well, it comes actually from the verses earlier. It requires community to actually have this kind of sober uh, reality or sober check on who we are. The good news is what Paul is not saying is a sameness. And that's seen in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with faith. There should be incredible thankfulness that I don't have to be like you and you do not have to be like me. Um, that should give you great courage. There's a book that came out called Boys in the Boat that tell the story of nine underdog working-class boys in Washington that upset all the elite rowers of the Ivy League and that went on to defeat Adolf Hitler's rowers to win the gold in the 1936 Olympics. Their entire strategy depended on teamwork. Uh, one of the descriptions was this. There's a thing that happens in rowing that's hard to achieve and harder to define. It's called a swing. It only happens when all eight oarsmen are rowing in perfect unison that no single action is out of step or out of sync with all the others. Sixteen arms must begin to pull. Sixteen knees must begin to fold and unfold. Eight bodies must begin to co-slide forward and backward. Eight backs must bend and straighten all at once. Each minute is action. Each subtle turning of the wrist must be mirrored exactly by each oarsman from one end of the boat to the other. Only then will the boat continue to run unchecked, fluid, graceful between the pores. Only then will it, everyone begin to feel that they're part of the boat, each one of them moving, but the boat moving in unison. One of the oarsmen said this, Only then will pain give away to exaltation. They described it this way, rowing becomes a kind of perfect language. Poetry is what a swing feels like. Uh, Kirby 
Caldwell said this, there are two great moments in a person's life, the moment you were born and the moment you realize why you were born. So what does Paul say here? If you're a Christian this morning, what, why are you here? Would be a best, why are you present? Why did God show you his mercy? Uh, you may not know the cause of it, but he certainly unrolls for us the results of it here. Paul doesn't say be humble or to see others better than you. Instead, as I said earlier, just the opposite. You have to see your value or worth. It doesn't mean to think less of your abilities. Instead, what he's advocating, you need to see that you're good at things, that you're skilled. Different gifts, one body, is what he advocates in verse 6. The gospel keeps us from thinking more highly of ourselves. That's true enough. But also more lowly than we should. This is a call to self-appreciation. Why is that? Who are you in the gospel? What has Paul said for 11 chapters? You're not nothing, actually. You all have distinct gifts, abilities, gifts that are required even, that are necessary. Francis Schaeffer said this, there's no such thing as little people. I want you just to imagine for a moment, thinking... um, that your big toe is not important until uh, it's broken or it's injured. I can just tell you that suddenly the whole body can think of nothing else other than that toe. Paul's point is when the gift, when the spirit takes over, gifts emerge. But it's not just for us. Instead, it's for others. He gives a list here and Uh, There are repeated lists of the gifts given in the New Testament. These are never complete. But just to unroll what Paul says, prophecy, as Paul is sort of giving it to us here, is not a divinely inspired message from God. It means really preaching or anointed speech for him. Service is practical service. Team workers who don't need the spotlight would be a best description. Teaching, making truth clear, understandable, and by the way, not boring That may be a preacher or not. It could be in a small group, large group, or with children of all places. Encouragement means to come alongside advisors, greeters, or people who welcome in the service. Giving, it's not just giving in unusual proportions, but giving wisely. Leadership, as Paul understands, is getting people to follow. And mercy, those who are moved to work with the poor, the sick, the addicted, the elderly. Paul's point is that everyone has a part. If you're here this morning, we're convinced, actually, as a church, you're here because we need you. That we're actually missing something without you. How do you know what your gifts are? It's better not to ask, what do you like? Instead, how has God worked through you in the lives of people around you? What are you drawn to? What do you ache for? What do you see that's missing here? What needs to be started or needs to be done? There is a danger as well that sort of needs to be at least addressed. The danger is this, that I see the gifts as belonging to me, whether somebody else recognizes them or not. Or I see these gifts as being mine, whether it makes sense or not. What do I mean by that? Some envision themselves to be teachers when in reality uh, they're just plain boring. Sacrificial service for others. Paul says everybody has a gift. 
use it would be his point. The movie Ant Bully is a computer animated movie about a boy, Lucas, who terrorizes an ant colony. He sprays the ant colony with water. He stomps on them. Um, in response, a wizard uh, devises a magic potion against him, and it shrinks Lucas down to ant size. Throughout the film, uh, throughout this animated movie, he is forced to live and work with the ants. Along the way, he begins to learn some lessons about courage, about loyalty, and actually he begins to develop sympathy toward his little friends. <laughs> uh, in this one scene, Lucas and his aunt's friend, Zock, are laying on the ground at night, staring up at the stars, and they see a lit-up city in the distance. So Zock asks him, so the city of yours, is it like a nest? And Lucas is responding, well, yeah, kind of. Um, and the humans that live there are brothers working together for the greatness of their colony. Well, not exactly. It's more like, you know, every man for himself. Zock says, that's so primitive. How does anything get done? Some people work together. Some, why not all? I suppose it's because of their differences. But it's the differences that make a colony strong. Forgers, scouts, drones, nurses, regurgitators, all are different, but a central part of the work. This is where we ants draw our strength. It's where the church draws its strength. It's where the gospel is seen and experienced. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that not only do you bring us in, but you give us gifts to serve you and to serve one another. There is no such thing as an observer in the kingdom. There is no such thing as an observer in your church and among your people. May that be true of us this morning. We all have a piece, a part to play so that your gospel would go forward, so that this world would be renewed. Help us to see that, to know that, to experience that this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.